0: When you subscribe to Bloomberg, you will get more than news. You will get inspiration to feed your ambition. You will put a woman on Mars. You will refreeze the ice caps. You will be the first chief crypto officer. You will power change and redefine the future. But before you invent, pioneer, disrupt. Before you change the world, Bloomberg. Discover more at Bloomberg.com slash you will.
1: Today, appreciate the time. Nice to meet you. Likewise.
0: Likewise, thanks so much for having me.
1: Awesome. So, um, could you kind of jump in, just tell us a bit about back to your background? And um, I know you guys got a lot of good stuff going on there, kind of what, what you got going on and what you're up to these days.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I start at the same point every time I do an interview because I think my story and my background is a little bit different than what a lot of people hear, especially in the finance space. So I'm going to go all the way back to when I was four years old. I started racing motocross. That was the first time I ever entered a race. I ended up uh, getting pretty good at it. And over the next decade or so, I ended up being ranked number two in the world uh, for my age group. And I liken it to the minor leagues of professional sports. So you have your prospects that are coming up. They're the future generation of your major league baseball, basketball, football, whatever it is. And you could say that I was one of those prospects that was next to take over The generation of motocross racers uh, professionally and so i was 14 years old i was about a year and a half away from turning professional and so i had no i rode for some of the biggest names in the motocross world that a lot of people have have heard of and uh, so i had no plans of going to college or anything like that that was all i was going to do and then one day uh, someone close to my family passed away racing And I didn't know them super close, but my dad was very friendly with their father. And so it hit him really close. And from that day on, he told me I was done racing and I didn't step foot on a bike again for about 12 years. And, uh, so I had to figure out something to do. And I just, I was always really good at math and I liked money. So I said, why don't I combine the two and, uh, look into finance and investing. And I just stumbled upon Warren Buffett and became super super passionate and obsessed with warren buffett learned everything i could about him and investing and all of that has led to where i am today
1: nice so um a couple of questions obviously you host two podcasts uh real estate 101 and millennial vesting correct
0: that is correct so you're
1: pretty much spending all your days talking about like money and finance and real estate and investing and all that stuff
0: yeah I'm either actually doing the investing or I'm talking about the investing
1: okay, cool. so I'd like to kind of get your perspective of since you're kind of like you're doing this every day you're all in what's your kind of take on you know let's talk about the real estate market first, whether you want to talk about nationally or where you are locally like what's your kind of pulse on the market right now
0: in terms of valuations and and things of that nature
1: yeah, just what what you're doing and valuation obviously we all know it's kind of crazy but just kind of want to see like with all, you know, what you're hearing, what you're seeing.
0: Yeah. The way I approach it is it's always a good time to buy a deal as long as the numbers make sense. So I take a lot of what I learned, probably the first 10 years that I studied investing was strictly stock market. I didn't get into real estate until I was probably about 21, so about five years ago. Okay. And... I take So I take a lot of what I learned in the stock market and studying Warren Buffett and bring it to the real estate world. And one of the things that he talks about is he doesn't really study the macro environment all that much. If he finds a good company that he believes is undervalued, he'll purchase it regardless of what's going on in the macro world. And so I bring that philosophy and that approach to real estate. And of course, I want to consider what's going on, but I don't really put a lot of weight on it. Even the global pandemic, I really didn't put a lot of weight on it. If I find a deal in this case, real estate a property, that makes sense, the numbers are good and I'm comfortable with it, that I'm willing to buy it. So I really haven't paid a ton of attention to valuations across the country, even where I'm investing. I know that things are relatively lofty and I get that. But for me, as long as the numbers make sense on a deal, I'm willing to buy it.
1: Nice. And what kind of stuff are you buying or investing in currently?
0: Currently, I only invest long distance. So we talked before the show, I live just north of Boston. And again, it's a relatively expensive market. It's not LA or New York City, but it's, it's pretty expensive here. So I invest solely long distance in single family rentals in Texas.
1: Oh, wow, okay, cool. So do you buy and hold, flip?
0: Yeah, I just do buy and hold. So I, well, I do house hacks and buy and hold traditional rentals. I don't do any flips. I might do some flipping in the future, but as of now, it's not really a strategy that interests me. I feel flipping is more of a job than it is investing, and I don't need another job. And uh, <laughs> I, I am interested in, in Airbnb, so I've started to take a liking to Airbnb, mostly because I want to a vac- couple vacation houses in a couple different destinations. So I see Airbnb as a good way to rent it out 90% of the time and then use it the little bit of time that I want to. So I'm starting to look into the Airbnb space, but predominantly, I'm focused on house hacking for where I live and then buying traditional rentals.
1: Nice. And then with your real estate podcast, um, what do you kind of, I mean, I know you're probably talking about your investing and in advice. What are you kind of talking about and are you, you know, who are you interviewing and then what are those conversations kind of like these days?
0: Yeah. So on the real estate show, I've had some, I mean, on both podcasts really, but specifically on the real estate show, I'd have, have had some amazing guests. I've had the chance to meet with Robert Kiyosaki, nice. Scott, Scott Trench from Bigger Pockets. A lot of the the guys and authors and gals from Bigger Pockets, um, Chad Carson, Jay Scott, tons of people from from Bigger Pockets and just other people that are doing awesome, great things in the real estate world. I've had the opportunity to talk with, talk with Kevin O'Leary, a couple other sharks from Shark Tank. It's just been it's been awesome. And what we're doing is I'm trying to help people understand that they can do it too. When I got started in real estate, the reason that I hadn't started before was because I never thought I could. So I'm trying to teach people strategies on how they can get started and how anybody can do it.
1: Yeah, and then um, I kind of want to switch to, I think they all tie in, but Millennial Investing. I think that's um, an awesome title. And I was gonna get your thoughts, like that's completely different than real estate, but what is that show really about? And Who are you talking to? Like, Who's your audience on that particular podcast?
0: So the goal of that show is to teach people between the ages of 20 and 40, typically, although I have a lot of people that are older that listen to it, that I want to teach them how to be better with their time and money. And so typically what that refers to is stock investing and then also personal finance. So originally the show was designed to predominantly talk just about stock investing. But then I realized in order to be a successful stock investor you need to have a strong base and that strong base is a good personal finance strategy and plan and so we added personal finance as the second pillar to the show and we also talk about entrepreneurship quite a bit and side hustles and some other ways that people can generate extra money to invest but the main pillars i would say are stock investing personal finance and side hustles what do you think um i'm 41 you're younger
1: um i think you know I've been lucky to be surrounded, kind of like, kind of like you by a lot of smart people, whether, you know, with money, real estate, different things. So I think just kind of like you, you study the right people, run the right people, I think it sets your mindset up to invest and save money and all that. But what do you think millennials these days or their biggest struggle is with saving money or investing? And, you know, what are you kind of typically seeing or just like feel like you, you can help the most
0: with that kind of generation? The biggest thing almost anybody is struggling with, millennials or not, is the fear of missing out. We're seeing so many different financial products and services hit the market right now, whether it's cryptocurrency, whether it's high-flying tech stocks, even wholesaling and real estate. I mean, there are all kinds of real estate strategies, stock investing strategies, cryptocurrencies, so many different things that are hitting the market that people are, they just feel like they're missing out. And it's causing them to make bad financial and investment decisions. And I think that's the biggest, not necessarily mistake, but thing that is causing problems for investors today, millennials and older and younger generations.
1: Yeah, do you think people are just, you know, taking money and just kind of throwing it into something because they heard their friend or their family or somebody invested? Do you think this is, um, and from your opinion, do you think this is like, you know, let's take, uh, you know, crypto, for example. I mean, I think there's, I mean, I do like crypto, but you think there's bubbles being created in some of these kind of sectors because of just people throwing money in and not really doing due diligence. They don't even you ask them, why did you invest in this? Oh, because my friend did. I mean, are you kind of seeing that kind of pattern?
0: Yeah, that's exactly it. I can't, and this is anecdotal, but the number of times that I've seen on Facebook from people that have never once shown any interest in any type of finance that are commenting or like, like talking about Dogecoin or all these other cryptocurrencies. And I've never seen them once talk about it. And maybe they just took up a huge passion for it recently. That maybe, but it's more likely that they're just hearing on the news or one of their friends is doing it or something is happening that's driving them to to take the actions that they are without them really understanding it. And my biggest piece is that they, most people don't understand what they're buying. If you fully understand what you're doing and you still want to participate, then I'm all for it. I actually think people should participate in Dogecoin and GameStop and Tesla and all these other crazy situations that are happening. And We can dive into that a little bit if you want, but I think the big piece is that you need to understand what you're buying. That is the key.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I'd love to dive into that because I think think there's some part of the market. It's funny because uh, I know Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger just came out and... Obviously it's uh, crypto's rat poison or whatever it is. But I think that um, I noticed like one of the contributors, you guys like Rob Hall, um, I'm a huge fan of them and uh, Real Vision, but obviously there's there's this, I mean, obviously look at Jamie Dimon, they were like against you know crypto, now they're in. And I think like you said, is a lot of people have taken the time, even these big companies and started watching and studying and analyzing people, and then they started making decision. Hey, I think we need to get in, but they didn't just jump in because everybody else is. But I would like for you to talk about that because um, you made that statement, and I think it's true. Like if you hear people go, Tesla's the worst stock, or this or that, but I think a lot of investors have talked about, you know, investing might have changed more, where it's like more momentum, right? There's so much momentum going into these particular stocks or crypto or whatever. But can you elaborate on what you just talked about? Why you think like it could be a good investment if you just Take the time to study and you know what you're investing in and you know, what you're doing.
0: Yeah, there's a couple yeah. of pieces of that or terms that I want to just kind of clarify a little bit. I don't think any of those are good investments. Personally, and this is not investing advice, but I personally believe that Dogecoin, GameStop, all those other companies that were related to GameStop and Tesla, I think they're all horrible investments. When we're talking about these from an investment perspective, I personally believe that they are bad investments. Now, could you make a good trade? Maybe. Now, that's a different thing. Trading and investing are very different. And if you're going into this, understanding the difference between investing and trading, and you're doing it with money that you're willing to lose, I don't see a problem with that. If you're going into this with hard-earned money that you can't lose, and you don't know what you're buying, you have no idea what Dogecoin is, you have no idea what Tesla even produces, no, no understanding of their financial statements or their management team, and you just can't risk this money. That's a horrible thing to do. But if you're going to just take a little bit of money here and there, you understand what you're buying and you understand it's not an investment, it's more of a gamble, then I think that's okay. And I actually think people should do that because if you don't, what I have found that if you don't take advantage of these little opportunities here and there, the FOMO continues to build up and it builds up and it builds up and it builds up. And eventually what's going to happen is you're going to explode and you're going to go in with a much larger position than you should have. So what I actually argue is that people should take small amounts of money, money that is immaterial to you, that you're not going to worry about if you lose it, you're not going to lose sleep at night and put it into each one. So yeah, I put a little bit of money into Dogecoin and all these other situations because I didn't care if I lost it, but now I scratched that itch and that itch is gone. So now the next time an opportunity like this comes up, one, I've learned from previous opportunities and two, I don't have the itch as bad because I've already participated before. So it's not building up and building up and causing me to explode and lose a lot of money. As, fo- as you go through every FOMO situation, it just continues to build on itself. So if you're going to participate, do it with money that you are willing to lose. Understand it's not an investment. It's a speculative trade. And then you're, you'll be in a good spot. Just don't think you're making a sound Warren Buffett style investment.
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, like Anthony Pompano, he says, you know, if Bitcoin, if you want, just put 1%, 1% of your money in, right? Like, it's non-risk. I agree with you. I think a lot of people do. They're playing these, they're doing the costs, you know, every month, every day, they put a little bit in, you know, cost per average, whatever. But I do agree. I think, uh, sorry to say that it was a good investment. I think, I think that's where you're going at is that tesla if you look fundamentally it doesn't make sense but i think that's what i was going to is a lot of these good traders that we see now uh, like a stan drunken miller i'm sure you've heard of him um he's even like wow i guess the fundamentals of like taking a business that makes money and investing into it uh, he's just like and now we're kind of investing off of momentum so he's investing in things he might not but because he's like there's so much momentum going I'm sure he's playing stuff that he might not be publicly saying that risking a little bit of money because it's like, there's opportunity here. So I I do agree. That is interesting. Do you think the FOMO is really, because really, really out there because of social media more than ever? I mean, it might've been back in the day, but since everything's just so out there all the time, it's just causing people to just, like you said, people are posting, I bought Bitcoin that never said anything before about anything. You know, it's like,
0: yeah, I do think so, because you would have no idea to know if anybody had ever participated in these financial situations previously without social media, unless you talk to them. And people are less likely to say things like they post on social media in person. So yeah, I do think social media has led to significantly more FOMO, not even just from people you know, but you see it all over the internet. You can see from some random guy that bought Dogecoin at zero 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 one and put his whole life savings into it, and now is a multi-millionaire from it and you don't know who that guy is but you still see it on social media you still see it on the news and so you still have fomo from it so yeah i do think social media and increased awareness into other people's lives has significantly increased fomo and then like
1: for um like the millennial age always i always um, wonder because when i was younger too um i think it's like who you're surrounded with i was going to ask you what do you think the biggest challenges with a millennial these days when it comes to money in regards to do you think do you think um spending saving um do you think it's just this much harder when you you know I, when i was you know your age you couldn't just click a button on amazon and order things and get it like that right so do you think because everything's so quick and easy and we want stuff now do you think that's a lot more challenging for millennials right now to like save money and not just spend, spend, spend?
0: I do think it's more challenging, but if you flip that coin, it's also more, it's easier to save. We never had the opportunity to just click that same button and save that money instead of spend it. So yeah, we are, it is a little bit easier to spend money than it used to be, but it's also easier to save it. It's easier than ever to invest it. It's cheaper than ever. So yeah, it's this dynamic of being easier to spend it, but it's also easier to, save it and it's also easier to make it so there's a lot of opportunities available to people for side hustles and creating all these other passive income businesses that they can create that can also help them invest so i think if you're looking at it on it net net i think we probably are in a better position to save more money and make more money than we are to spend it but there definitely is a more propensity to consume these days than there was without technology yeah, I think too, um, you know, when I was 25, there wasn't
1: uh, you know, 26, I think that's around your age, there there wasn't this many podcasts. There wasn't people that there are people that, I mean, that's why I tell with COVID, I was like, one of the great things for me for COVID, and maybe you'll agree because you're a podcaster, which is awesome, but I'm sure you watch other people, is a lot of people that never came on camera because they're like, Well, I'm not gonna fly here and go there when Zoom came out. There's a lot of money managers or smart people that decided i'm stuck at home hey okay i'll do a zoom call with you know i'll do it with you robert or kenny or whoever and get on the podcast and talk about my i've been trading for 50 years or whatever you get to hear so many smart people that it's hard to get you know you let them talk them four minutes on CNBC. you're like that's all i get from the guy it's like a teaser but you get to hear about an hour of their history and their investing philosophy so i think too the other thing that millennials have is they have so much information at their fingertips that they can listen while they're in the car or working out or whatever. I think that's such a huge advantage.
0: Yeah, we have fantastic access to information these days. Books are so cheap. Uh, podcasts are free. YouTube is free. The possibilities for learning is endless right now. And I think that's a huge advantage that we have. What's your, um, what's
1: your advice? Because um, I know... know i don't know if you're giving advice in your podcast or you're just talking to people but if somebody's like let's just talk about real estate um a lot of people right now i think because rates are low they're scared of the stock market because it is high i get it or they just don't understand it um but a lot of people too i mean look, most wealthy people that i know rich people whatever they own real estate right i mean they might own stock but they own real estate and we we're in real estate so a lot of people i know own a lot of real estate but What is your advice to somebody that's, you know, watching this, or you know, they're just like, man, I'm going to buy my first investment property or home right now. Um, Do you have any particular advice for them that you could give, or you know, from your history, from what you've learned, you know, doing your own real estate investing?
0: Yeah, I think the number one best thing for anybody to do to get started in real estate is to house hack. I think it's by far the most powerful strategy for anybody just getting started. If that's not an option for you, which I would argue that it if, if done right, it could be an option for anybody, but if you feel it's not an option for you, then a traditional rental, I just recommend to people that you don't get squeezed into your own market. Technology has completely changed how you're able to invest in real estate. Nearly anybody can invest long distance. So I like to say, invest where the numbers make sense and live where you wanna live. So just don't be trapped into your local market. And I think you should always start small with your first property, whether it's traditional rental or a house hack, but I believe in starting as small as you possibly can go. And that goes against a lot of gurus. A lot of gurus tell you to go as big as possible. And I actually feel you should go the opposite. And then how, when
1: you, for example, I know you spoke that you are investing in Texas. That's awesome. Great market. How do you, how do you pick a market and how did you pick that market?
0: So the way I picked my market is I had a guest on my show. His name is Neil Bawa and he is a data scientist turned real estate investor. And with my background in finance and accounting, that's what my corporate job was prior to leaving the corporate world. I'm big into numbers and data as well. So when I spoke with Neil, his strategy really, really spoke with me. And having him be a data scientist, he really dives into the data as well. And so what he did was he backtested a bunch of demographic data and decided on six demographic data points that typically indicate that a market is a good rental market. And so... He gave me his blueprint for those six demographic demographic data points. And what I did was I scraped census data for 7,000 cities across the U S and I ranked each one on the six demographic data points. And I weighted them based on my importance for each one. And then I ranked them one to 7,000 and I looked at the top 25 and I went through each one and I basically crossed them off or continued to pursue them based on two characteristics. one is there enough inventory here for me to purchase? And is there the right inventory that I'm looking for? If I'm looking for single family, is single family available? I'm looking for multifamily, is that available? And two, are there real estate professionals there that are able to assist me in my long distance business? If the answer to both of those questions or either of those questions were no, then I would cross the market off. And out of the top 25 that I found, I found probably about 10 of them that had inventory that I was interested in purchasing and also had adequate real estate professionals to help me out with this business. And so my business partner, Ryan, and I started to make offers across all 10 cities. And these ranged from Texas to Ohio, to Alabama, to Idaho, to all over the Carolinas. We were all over. We basically said, as soon as we get one deal in one of these markets, we'll just continue to focus on that market until we are fully saturated. We can't anymore. And then we have to expand. We'll go to a different market. But until then, we'll we'll just focus on the one that we get a deal in first.
1: Just so happens
0: that we were able to get a deal on a small town in Texas, and we've just continued to scale our portfolio there since. Smart. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think that's really smart because a lot of people understand it's like, you know, when you're putting offers out and you're out of state, some people go, is this guy real or is he going to close? But once you close on one, all of a sudden you become more of a real buyer, right? And they're like, oh, and then you buy another one. Then they just like, oh, this guy's buying. So I think it does... Grab attention and people that are agents like, hey, I just bought a couple of deals, you know. So I think that's huge when you're entering a market. So that's a smart strategy. Are you guys? Um, are you? Are you just single family? Do you ever have plans to bump up into uh, multifamily?
0: Yeah, Five absolutely, absolutely. So we actually went into this expecting to buy multifamily. We we basically said we would never buy single family. Okay. We we said we only wanted to do multi, uh, but then what we found was we were, it had been probably six to nine months before we did anything. And we, we knew we were ready. We had the money. I mean, we weren't rich by any means, but we had enough for a decent down payment. We had good education. We were ready, but we just, we were not making anything happen. And we both were getting really frustrated with that because we were both really hungry go-getters and we really wanted to get our first rental property. So we decided, okay, let's just start small. Let's just do it. We'll go with a single family, We'll go away from the multis because we can't seem to get a deal. So let's just go small single family. And we did, and it it just ended up working out really well. Now we've built a really good little niche in the single family market. And it's funny because we said we'd never do single family. And now we actually really like the single family market that we're in. And so our plan for now is to continue to scale here. So we're not struggling with single families because we have great processes in place. We self-manage from 2,000 miles away, which a lot of people find to be interesting. And yeah yeah so it's it, it and we spend probably less than two hours a month on each property so and we can get into that, but that's partially why I like the single family space so much and so we're gonna continue to scale our portfolio here we just brought we bought three properties last month, uh one of them we got for zero dollars down using a very light burr strategy, and the other two we got for roughly five percent down or or maybe even a little bit less, so we're just doing really well in that niche, and we're enjoying it so We're going to continue to scale it. We think we'll probably get to 10 or 12 of these before it starts to get too big. And at that point, we'll either pivot to multifamily in a different market because this market doesn't have multifamily. Or what we plan to do is kind of create a fund of all these 10 to 12 single family properties and then sell interest in the fund to raise capital to buy additional multifamily deals. So kind of Turned it into a fund model with the ten to twelve single family properties as the underlying collateral to them buy a probably a fifty unit thirty to sixty unit apartment building.
1: Smart, love it. That's awesome. Can you talk about? Um, yeah, I'd like to talk about that. So, how do you manage? From I used we used to manage fifteen hundred units here in San Diego. So here we sold the company. So we have a lot of experience. it was, it was mainly multifamily and then some houses. So we do have like that experience. So when you say, Hey, I'm, man, I don't care if you're managing one house or 10 houses from 2000 miles, uh, that's a pretty big task if you really don't know what you're doing. So I'd like to hear your strategy and how you've had success in that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So it's the reason that we've been, I think the reason we've been successful with it is two, there's two reasons. One, we have an awesome, awesome agent. We would not be able to do what we're able to do without our rockstar agent. And two, it's because I think it's because of the single family niche. And this isn't to say you couldn't do it in multifamily, but what we've been pleasantly surprised to find is that we're buying really nice houses in really good school districts in good areas. So we're getting awesome tenants and they just don't require a lot of oversight. They don't require a lot of management. They're good families that just want a great place to live. And so they're really easy to manage and they're low maintenance. And so that's partially because of the types of properties we're buying, but it's also because of our screening. We're really strict with our screening criteria and we'd rather let a property sit vacant for an extra month if that meant we're going to get a better quality tenant in there. So we're just really strict with our screening and also the property types. And that has been that has been important for us and it's it's worked really well. And so when you get into the multifamily stuff, it typically, if you have an apartment building, the the... Tenant base is a little bit lower quality than you're going to get with a nice single family and a good school district with a yard, and so that's what we found to be a nice little niche for us.
1: No, that's smart. And then, are you using um, software too? Yeah, so we um, use a
0: property management software just called Cozy. It's free for landlords, and it works great.
1: And I'm assuming you just have a really good like candyman crew or something. So if you need
0: something fixed, they can go over there and fix it on notice. Exactly. Exactly. So our agent is also an investor. So we've been investing in this market for a little over two years now. So we, we know the contacts that we need to contact now, but when we were first starting, he was awesome. So if we needed a plumber, we'd just call our agent and say, Hey, who do you use for your plumber? He would give us that contact. We'd call the plumber and say, Hey, can you go fix this? And then a lot of times, like I said, we have such high quality tenants we just connect the plumber with the tenant, they schedule it all themselves and it gets handled. And then we just pay pay the plumber. And the same thing works for electricians, handymen, landscaping, et cetera. And now that we know we use the same people for all of our properties. So it's it's really pretty easy.
1: Yeah, it's funny. I don't remember if I was listening to a podcast or something, but you know, somebody's a real estate agent, they should really listen to what you just said there because um, that's how a real estate agent can add a lot of value, right? It's like you're going into a market, you don't know anybody. And we're, I, we, I don't know if we're on like crystal we're talking to somebody. We, I think we we're just talking to somebody, but that's what they said. And I think we're, when we were in Dallas or something a couple of weeks ago, we had this investor conference and um, somebody was mentioning that, oh yeah, you know, people come from out of state to Texas and buy. And she's like, look, I tell them, I've got the plumber i've got the property manager we can take care of the whole thing so if you just want to buy i know where to buy here's the they have it all lined up so it's very very easy for you to do and a real estate agent can add a lot of value especially in these areas like texas or florida or all these markets there where people are coming especially california money is moving into a lot of markets as you know um and they're looking but they don't have any contact so if you don't if you didn't invest like a bigger pockets or some type of investor group and don't have that base a real estate agent can do a lot for you so i think that's awesome you found that and i think for a real estate agent that's a huge value to bring to somebody i mean look what it's done for you
0: yeah our real estate agent is hands down number one the most important piece of our business we would not be able to do what we do without him
1: yeah and i think that goes too is um even with multifamily, you enter another market. You're dealing with that commercial broker. If somebody's really, really good, they would be able to say the same things. Hey, I got you dialed. I, I've been here 20 years, 15 years. I know. I know this street and know that street and know the buildings and know the owners and know the management. That's why I tell people. So I think investing at a state when you hear something like this, it can go right if you have the right team. You know, I think team is so important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't do it without a good team. So just a
1: pivot. So I want to talk about the investing, which is cool, I think, is uh, a lot of people I talk to, they just, you know, unfortunately, they just want to invest in real estate. They want nothing to do with the stock market. I get it. They've done really, really well with real estate. And I think they're just so down that road and so hyper focused. They just could care less about the stock market. But. I like the stock market. I think there's opportunity to make money there, too. I think, if, you know, if you put a little bit of time and research you know, every day or every week, you can find opportunities to invest and make money. So I was going to ask you, what's your strategy for somebody that's getting, you know, that might want to invest that's young or old or whatever and jump into the market and start investing? What kind of information or, you know,
0: what are you kind of telling people? The biggest thing is to get educated. This goes back to what we talked about before. I don't want to see anybody make any investments if they don't fully understand what they're purchasing. If you understand what you're buying, then I'm all for whatever you want to buy. If you have a thesis and you understand why you're buying it, then just because I disagree with it doesn't mean it's wrong. If you believe in it, that's fine. Just make sure you understand what you're buying. And so what I always recommend to new stock investors is that they read two books. And there's a book on individual stock picking And you could pick whichever one you want. I have two or three that I usually recommend. And then there's a passive or like an index fund style investing. So one is where you don't pick individual stocks. You just buy one fund and it owns 500 stocks for you, or you pick individual stocks. And I tell them to not invest a dollar until they've read both of these books. And then once they've read both of these books, decide which strategy they think fits their personality best. Some people don't want to pick individual stocks. They just want to pick an ETF and just continue to, it's like real estate. You just put money in every single week or every month and let it continue to compound over time. You'll get the market returns and you'll do very well. Or you could spend a lot of time and invest into individual companies if you understand them, but that's not for everybody. So you gotta find out which strategies for you and then you can decide to start investing. But until you've done those two things, I don't think anybody should invest in the stock market.
1: No, I think that's, uh, that's great advice. So you got the real estate one-on-one, you got the millennial investing, you're managing your own properties, you're investing your money. Um, so how do you have the time to do all this stuff?
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, well, I, I actually had a W-2 job for a long, I mean, up until January on my, tw- on my 26th birthday is when I retired from the corporate world. So wow,
1: congrats, that's thank awesome. Thank you,
0: yeah. Up until then I worked a 60, 70 hour a week corporate job while doing everything that I'm doing now. I'm not doing anything extra now. Wow. Still doing all the same stuff. So right now, I honestly kind of feel like I have free time uh, compared to compared to what it used to be. I mean, it's not easy by any means, but, uh, you know, I still work really, really hard and put in long days. But yeah, it's just I, I just have a really good schedule and regimen that I follow and works well. So basically what you did is uh, this was kind of,
1: you know, I don't know if it was a side hustle, but it seemed like a lot of work. But you were doing your W2 job, making money, stacking cash, starting to invest in real estate, the stocks. And then you created the side hustle with the podcast and things like that. So I was going to talk to you about that. Cause I think there's a lot of people Look, it's young and old doesn't matter age. They're, they're getting burnt out from their W2 job. They don't like it. But then they see, you know, somebody like you basically fire their boss and say, I'm out of here. Right. And you you've created like another opportunity for yourself. I just want to talk to you a little bit more about that. Like what, did, did, you, is this always in you to create the side hustle and get out of the corporate world? And then what was like the mind shift for you? Like the mindset to say, I got to just get out of this. I got to go do my own thing.
0: So I had always had the entrepreneurial itch. I always knew that I was going to do my own thing at some point. Mark Cuban taught me that I needed to take the corporate job that paid the most money that required the least amount of my time. And the reason for that was I could spend all my extra time building my own business or side hustle. And so I, when I heard that, I, it really. Yeah. It took that to heart. It meant a lot. So, yeah. So every job I took throughout my corporate career, I, that was in the back of my mind. I said, yeah, there was a couple of jobs where I may, I maybe made a little, I could have made a little bit more money, but I would, have, it would have taken a lot more time. I would have had to travel or et cetera, whatever the situation was, I would have made a little bit more money, but I would have been a lot more tied up at work. And so I didn't do that. I took the ones that I made a little bit less money, but I had a little bit more free time. And so I worked nearly full time on side hustles on nights and weekends. Every single night I'd come home from my corporate job, I worked every night, every weekend. I built as much as I could on the side because I knew someday I wanted it to get to a point where I could leave my corporate job and just do my side hustles, whether it's real estate, podcasting, anything I have going on full time. I didn't know when that was going to be. I always knew at some point I would get there, but I didn't know when. And it didn't really have an end date because none of my employers cared. So I figured, well, why am I going to quit the six-figure job with benefits, et cetera, when I can still do all my side hustles on the side that aren't being held back because of my corporate job? So it just doesn't really make sense for me to quit. And then About a year and a half into my last corporate job, I got a new boss, and I reported to the CFO, and so I got a new CFO to report to, and she was the first boss that I had since I started my side hustles a few years prior that had an issue with my side hustles, Uh and basically, I was called into her office one day and said, you need to pick your side hustles or your corporate job, and I was essentially given an ultimatum. And at the point, I wasn't quite where I could quit my corporate job. I had to still grow my side hustles. And so that really lit a fire under me. And so for the next six to nine months or so, I kind of just kept the side hustles a little bit more quiet than I had been previously. I just grinded really, really hard and then, uh, yeah, gave my notice and jumped in full time.
1: Wow. Congrats. That's huge. I mean, especially at your age. How, so how long did you, um, how long did the side hustle go on? I mean, I know you got the fire and probably push harder, but how long did it really take from when you started to give notes, were you working on that? Two years, three years or two years. Okay. So, yeah. And I think people that are watching, it's like, it's just important. I think, uh, you know, with the internet and things like that now, I think a lot of people are trying to do the side hustle, but, um, look, it's two years. It's a lot of work. I kind of call it um, delayed gratification, you know. I think it's the sacrifice everybody kind of like, you know. It's hard if you're young, you're making good money, you've never made it. It's very easy to go buy a house, get the car, get trapped, you know, trapped in that. And I always say it's like a W two trap. You they've got your handcuffs on, right? Because you want that lifestyle, and then you're like, oh, but then I have to work another, you know, thirty hours a week to get the sidelines. So it's really hard to uh, get over that, like. Um, what's your advice to somebody that might be, you know, has a good WG job that's fighting like, man, I want to get out of here. I'm going to do this, but they've kind of built this life, but they're like, they don't want to give up that like freedom they have on the weekends or traveling to, you know, do that side hustle thing, fire their boss.
0: Then they just don't want it bad enough. I mean, I'm very, I'm very clear about like that. I don't really make it, I don't fluff it up really. You either want it or you don't, and you either put in the time or you don't and, I mean, that's as simple as it is. If you want the free time on the weekends, every single weekend, like, I'm not going to say I didn't have fun. I still went out and I still had fun. I still went on vacations and stuff, but I worked a lot when a lot of people weren't. So if you're not willing to do that, then, then, and working a W2 job is completely okay. And so just accept that. And then that's what it is. But, uh, don't, don't say it's because you don't, you can't do it or you don't have time. It's just, it's what you choose to spend your time on. Nice. So I was going to talk, to, obviously, we do the podcast, you do the podcast.
1: How does this podcast change your life?
0: Probably the biggest way that it has changed my life is how I think about I don't want to say validation, but that's probably the best word that I can think of. And the reason I say that is because growing up, I'd always been just super money hungry. I always wanted to be a billionaire. I wanted a private jet. My Have you heard of superlatives? Your yeah. high school? So high school, like in your high school senior class, usually you get voted like uh, most handsome or nicest eyes or nicest yeah, smile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Those are called superlatives. My senior year, I was voted most likely to be a billionaire out of my senior oh, yeah. class. So it's just kind of always been in me. Like I've just always loved money. And then you, you hear from these people that, you know, helping people and changing people's lives means more than money. And I always just kind of laugh, like not laughed at it, but I kind of just I'm like, yeah, okay. You know, you're multimillionaire. Of course you can say that. Like, yeah, cool. You're, you can't be right. And then I started the podcast and I get hundreds of messages a week, even daily that say, I bought my first property because of you. I did this because of you. I did this because of you. And I just couldn't believe how good that felt. And that means so much more to me than any of the money that I'm making from the podcast or the real estate. Anybody that I've been able to help from the podcast and everything I'm doing content creation wise, it just means so much more to me than, than the money. And that has probably been the biggest thing that I've learned. I never would have expected to get to that point from when I had started the podcast to where I am now. But that is definitely the biggest thing.
1: So do you still want to be a billionaire? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you realize that's a lot of work
0: not even the work i don't mind putting in the work it's the time you can't be count you can't most of the time billionaires don't have as much time as people who are just have a like i want to have 5 10 15 20 even 50 million dollars like i, w- I still want to be rich yeah, right. but i don't need but to be see. billionaire status a yeah. lot of people think that those people have the most free time when you actually think about it they don't and once you hit a certain point where money does like another dollar isn't going to do anything for you. And yeah. so there was an exercise I did one time where I sat down and I, I had a guy, he wasn't quite a mentor to me, but he was uh, just somebody that I knew that was quite successful. And he said, write down the most wild things you could ever imagine that you want. And so I did. And I tally, I tallied it all up and it was expensive. Like it was a lot of money, but it, I didn't need like a billion dollars. I didn't even yeah. need more than like a couple million to do it. So I'm like, anything beyond that is useless. And if it's gonna take away from the time that I can spend with my son or anything else that I'm doing, it's not worth it to me. And so I care more about, I wanna get to that point where I can have anything I want, but also I need to be able to have my time as well.
1: Yeah, I think too, it's, um, it was funny. I was, uh, we were having a family dinner and the, my mother-in-law's boyfriend was there and his daughter's where she's 16. And I was kind of like, so I'm always intrigued by kids. I was like, hey, so what did the kids talk about in high school? Like, I don't know, you know? And she's like, they want to be successful. And I was like, what? She goes, yeah, there's a stress to be successful. And I was like, what? She goes, no, seriously. Like, because of the internet, they see all this stuff. Like, they want to be a billionaire. They want to be an entrepreneur. They want to be a YouTube star, but they want to be successful. They want to make money. This is the, they're stressed about it. Like it's this thing. And I'm like thinking we're growing up. It's like, I know I had that in me a little bit. Most people are like, I just want to go party on Saturday night or something. But so I thought that was very, very interesting because I thought I was going to get a different answer, but I think, you know, a lot of these kids come out and you know, you kind of know this, you, you're young, you've had some success. Now you're doing your own thing. I mean, I always tell people, I think people's relationship with money is really why they're terrible with money. And so I was going to ask you because you know you do a lot of these things, you interview a lot of people, you talk all day long about money. Do you think the relationship with money, or what people think, like when you're 16, and if I get all this, they have this vision, I'm going to have all this money, it's going to make them happy or give them status? Like, I wanted to ask you your opinion. Like, are you getting questions or ever comments about stuff like that? Where you get feedback to millennials?
0: Yeah, the biggest thing I, because when I was that age, I felt the same way. Like I said, I thought that material things would make it. I thought that would make me happy. I thought that was everything that I needed. And I've just realized that it's not having when I wake up in the morning and I don't have anything that I have to do, a lot of things that I should do and I'm going to do, but there's nothing I have to do. That is the feeling that is worth way more than any material item that I have. So the biggest thing that I would say to people is, is don't get so stuck up on the dollars. Don't get so stuck up on the material things and worry about building a life that you want to live.
1: Yeah, I like that. Um, what's, uh, you know, one, two or three, what's your top money tips you give people like just general tips? I'm a millennial I'm listening. What are the two, three things that somebody should be like, that they're like, man, I am terrible with money. I don't know anything. I'm starting to make it. What should they know? Like, boom, right now
0: get started with personal finance first, set a budget. And it's it's not sexy. It's not the fun part of, of finance or money. The fun and sexy part is investing. But in order to get there, you need to have a good budget and you need to have a good financial base. And this isn't, a budget doesn't have to be super restrictive. It doesn't have to be even that much in depth. Just know where your money is going. And then you can start to build from there. Don't try and do anything fancy until you've gotten past that point. I think the best way to explain it is investing is like building the house and the house needs to go on a foundation. If there's no foundation, there's nothing for the house to stand on. And eventually that house will collapse. And that's the way it's going to work with your money. If you start investing before you have a strong personal finance base, your investing house is going to collapse and you're going to need to build that foundation first. So just start there, build your foundation and your personal finances first and then start investing. Awesome. So
1: what's, um, Couple more questions and then wrapping up. What what's what's next for you? Anything exciting coming up this year? You're working on or getting into?
0: Personally, the most exciting thing is I got back on a dirt bike, so I'm racing again. So that's oh, uh, so that's, that's awesome. yeah, thank you. So that's probably the most exciting thing for me personally. Business and investing wise, it's just kind of more of the same. Really, I bought three properties last month. I'm hoping to maybe get to ten this year, uh, meet ten deals this year. That would be my goal we'll see how the rest of the year goes. But, uh, yeah, that's kind of my plan for now. And other than that, I don't really have a ton of specific milestones to meet. Nice. Um,
1: where is the um, best place people can find you before I ask my final and last question?
0: Yeah, the best place, two best places to find me are one, I have a community it's called DREI shadow. Uh, basically it's a shadowing program where people can shadow me on my real estate journey. So, I walk you through every single thing that I'm doing in my real estate journey. It's literally like you were shadowing me on a job. You know, back I got this idea because back in high school, you used to go and shadow people to see what kind of job you might want to do in college. Yeah. So I said, so I called it the, the REI shadow. You get to shadow the real estate investor. See all the nitty gritty. Books and things like that are great. They teach you theory, but they're not going to teach you what you have to do when you need to call and turn on the utilities or get your lawn mode. So I, I show screenshots of all of these emails that I do with financing, Companies, banks, lenders, my business partner, all the details. I share it as part of that community, as part of people shadowing me. And the second best place. Thank you. Yeah. And the second best place to be on Instagram. My username is the Robert Leonard. Uh, I do get a lot of DMs. So it takes a while for me to respond. But if you do DM me, I will answer. I answer every single one. And uh, I will definitely get there if you guys have any questions. And then when you have two podcasts,
1: how often did you um, release episodes?
0: Yeah. So they're they're all on one feed. So it's, it's technically under one podcast feed, but there's two different segments, as you mentioned. One is Millennial Investing. That's released every Monday at 6 a.m. Eastern Time. And the Real Estate 101 segment is released on Wednesdays, every Wednesday at 6 a.m. Eastern Time. Nice. So I always ask this
1: uh, question to everybody. So I'm curious to see what your answer is. What is your definition of generational wealth?
0: My definition, Of generational wealth is is interesting because i again follow warren buffett so closely and he talks about not giving money to his kids and so i just tweeted about this the other day it's being able to give enough money to your kids that they can do anything but not so much that they can't do nothing and that's how i think about generational wealth
1: it's funny um Literally somebody gave me the same answer as you. Same quote. Like that's I think they're like, they don't want to leave their kids with too much, but just enough where it's like, you know, it's they're like they're not lazy or whatever. Exactly. Um, right. Well, Robert, thanks for coming on. Congratulations, first off, for firing your boss. That's awesome. Um, Thank you. secondly, congratulations at you know being a success at such a young age and figuring all this stuff out. And obviously, I think it's huge that you're giving back your time and energy and you're getting paid for, which is awesome to teach, you know, millennials, older people about money and investing. I know it's super important to me. I think if people spend a lot more time on this topic and turn it off the TV, they would be a lot further on in life. They'd have a better retirement. And I think it would only help accelerate, you know, especially a place like the United States, if everybody was just more financially, you know, have more financial wisdom. So I appreciate what you're doing and um, thanks for coming on and sharing your story and your
0: time. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. Thanks so much. Awesome. Talk soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.